You're listening to the Coffee and Clergy Podcast. I'm Pastor Scott, and we're glad that you're joining us today. You can watch us live on YouTube or Facebook on Thursday mornings, or you can check us out in audio format wherever you get your podcasts. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Good morning and welcome to Coffee and Clergy. I'm Pastor Doug Chinberg. I'm Pastor Scott Pitch. Very glad to have you with us today as we continue in our series on speaking the truth in love. Uh, Episode four today, where we're going to launch from some of the issues we've been talking to into perhaps some of the, the most contentious issues that we can talk about today in terms of how Christianity intersects with uh, social issues that we see in our, in our culture around us. And so uh, the, the main thrust today is how do we share the compassion and the love of God in the midst of these uh, difficult uh, to reconcile social situations and issues. So we'll talk about several of those today. Uh, so hopefully if you're joining us uh, for the first time, we want to say welcome. And if you're back again, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we always begin in a prayer, so let's invite God to join us and uh, the Holy Spirit to be with us today. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your great mercy to us, uh, acknowledging that you are a God uh, who loves all your people. You are a God who created all to know your goodness and your love and your mercy. And you have sent us to share that compassion and love with others. Help us to know when to speak, when to be silent, when to listen, uh, and when to share words or actions or both with those in our lives. We thank you for your Holy Spirit dwelling with us today that you might open our eyes and our ears to see, to read, to understand your word. And that that word might transform our hearts to be better imitators of you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there are all kinds of social issues, and we'll get into some of the specific ones in just a little bit. But uh, maybe we can begin by, uh, or begin in a more general way as we talk about just handling the tension between uh, the secular issues, social issues of justice and the Christian vocation um, as we care and have compassion for those around us. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the areas you can start with is to say, well, what do we mean when we say social issues or or the phrase social justice, which sounds like something we should all pursue is justice in our Mm -hmm. society. I think, though, that um, in some ways that term social justice has kind of been taken up or sort of subsumed by a political stance um, to mean something different than what we might first interpret it to mean. So one of the things I want to establish from the beginning is when we're using words like justice and when we're using terms like social issues and, and having compassion for others, we're doing so from the standpoint of an understanding of, of what you could call social justice from a church perspective, not social justice as it's often put out there in the political sphere. Um, so we want to be careful about terminologies here because... Define, think, define the terms. Yes, yes, I think a lot of times <laughs> if you fail to define the terms, people think you're speaking about one thing and you're actually speaking about a different thing. So then how do we handle that tension? Well, I think that uh, people by their very nature have the law written on their heart. They see injustice in the world around them. Usually they see injustice in their own life too. And they can empathize with others when they see injustices befall them. And so they have the instinct, uh, or you might say the law written on their heart, to act in accordance with their understandings of what justice is. Um, And so this idea of social justice has popped up where people perceive injustices in our society, be they actual injustices or sort of perceived perceived or even or even uh, s- developed in a, within a structure to create those injustices and okay. things like that or or on the opposite side also um, having a system that's designed to find injustices where injustices do not exist so we have to be careful here with like I said with our terminology um, in, in the Christian church, however, it's it's absolutely clear our scripture does not give us the choice to ignore injustices in the world. So we have to be careful about not going so far the other way against this kind of political social justice uh, tack to say that we just don't care about justice in our society at all. We're just going to turn it all over to God and let God handle all the injustices because we are called in in God's word to act for the for the benefit and the well-being of our neighbor. 
And if we see injustice, we're supposed to seek justice where we have the capacity to act. And so this, making this distinction right from the beginning, I think, is a good place to start. Yeah. So it's, it's helpful to, also helpful to understand the issue, what's going on, uh, how is it played out in the, in the context of our community and culture. Uh, different cultures have, uh, you could say, different nuances of, of uh, social justice. And, and, and also it's important to know what, what, what does God's word say about how we should love and care for our neighbor. So I think back to, to Jesus's time or Old Testament times and probably some of the people that were treated um, the worst were people who were foreigners, uh, women, children, widows, orphans. Um, God was concerned about all of those folks and he had, he had a very practical word to say for those um, uh, who were less fortunate, those who were looked down upon or even despised and rejected in some ways. Yeah. And um, You could even go so far as to say Jesus didn't just kind of accept them. He, he gave them preferential treatment a lot of times in his ministry where others would say like, you know, sure, toss a coin their way to, to show your, you know, following through on all righteousness. Keep them quiet. <laughs> keep them quiet, yeah. But Jesus says, nah, actually, I'm going to go to dinner at your house, right? It's like yeah. that you don't do that in, in Jewish society because essentially that's, you know, associating and, and taking up residence with people who are sinners, which is not a good thing in their eyes. But for Jesus, it's showcasing that to him, compassion and love and mercy for people of those uh, particular uh, issues that are in that particular state of life or have those issues is actually very vitally important and at the core of what his ministry is for, who, it came, who he came to save. So maybe let's talk a little bit about, um, have, have you ever seen Christians uh, as indifferent or uninvolved in social issues? I think so. And I think part of it stems from the, pol the politics. Uh, we can very quickly uh, in take up a position in favor of a political stance that actually kind of silently under the surface is in contrast to our religious view um, as a Christian. So we have to be cautious as Christians. Uh, Christianity does not fit neatly into uh, liberalism, conservatism. It does not fit into Democrat or Republican or Libertarian. It does not fit into any human institution or party uh, perfectly. And so we have to be careful that when we make decisions um, in, in society, in, in these social issue kind of realms, that we're doing so as Christians, not simply as people who are kind of standing on a platform of a party or a group of people or an ideology um, other than uh, our, what our faith and what God commands in his word. So I think that's one of the things, especially in probably late 20th and, and so far early 21st century American Christianity that you see a lot of is that uh, Christians, um, w w when they're confronted with some of these, some of these justice kind of issues, Will, will hear people that they respect, people that they are called to serve on the one hand as good citizens of our nation, and they'll simply say, like, I'm washing my hands of this because my politics doesn't match up um, with helping that type of person or, or condoning that type of behavior or taking my money and giving it to this cause or whatever it might be because... Um, you know, they, they've allowed, uh, we've allowed, frankly, I've allowed at times my own um, sort of secular and political understandings to override uh, what I know to be true from God's word. Okay. So it's, it's easy as a Christian, one, to be indifferent. I, I don't understand that. I, I don't think I can do anything. And we just then don't do anything at all. Um, uh, it's much easier to it, not do anything at yes, all. So yes. you kind of have this uh, this uphill resistance to try to do something, yeah. and that's not easy. It's also easy to be critical. We can always find something wrong with uh, whatever group. Um, that that becomes a challenge. You know, I, I think sometimes here in the church we have people that come in off the street and they're um, they're looking for food or they're looking for a place to stay or they want you to pay for um, um, gas or, gas or, or um, uh, drugs that they need, mm -hmm. um, um, pharmaceutical drugs. Okay. Um, and 
uh, a lot of times we're not equipped. Uh, we can't do the background checks. We don't have time to do what's needed to, uh, to help them. We also understand it's not good to throw money after those kinds of needs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of times we in the church, we try and work with community agencies uh, to get them the help that they need, but to do it in the proper way. Yeah. So I think then a big part of this is, you know, it, it, when you turn on your TV and you see suffering around the world, your, your first instinct could be, I need to get on a bus and I need to drive over here and drop everything in my life to go help them. Perhaps that's a good thing, and there are people who answer those kind of calls. But I think we can acknowledge there are ways that we could, if we put forth the effort, find a means within our own context, within our own sphere. We, we can vet organizations that work with people in need. We can um, figure out ways to volunteer in our own communities so that the, the pain in our own area is is uh, healed to some degree, which which has a ripple effect. There are, there are all kinds of ways... Uh, without being a, um, you know, a, a disaster relief involved, like there are people in our congregations, uh, in our in our districts who have done that in in droves, and I applaud them. But not everyone has um, the ability to do that, and so there's a lot of other ways to get involved in those kinds of okay. human human care kind of needs. Yeah. So, could you share some uh, examples, uh, historical or contemporary, where Christians have made uh, significant contributions in some of the social causes that are around us. Yeah, it's so interesting that the Christian faith throughout its history has never intended to be known as people who are major proponents for social welfare and and uh, like in, within a, a governmental style structure. Mm -hmm. But when you look back on history, hospitals were started by Christians. Mm -hmm. um, food shelters were started by Christians. Orphanages. Orphanages were started by Christians. Like all of these kind of human care things that our state leans on so heavily and models many of their welfare programs after were all started by the church. I mean, and the the church never, like I said, never meant to establish like a a big machine of human care, you know, organizations. They just wanted to share the love of Jesus. They just wanted to use their hands and their feet and their mouth and their or their voice and their, you know, their lives to to serve their neighbor and to um, help take up some, some of somebody else's suffering so that they didn't have to bear such a heavy load. And so in the early church, this is what Christians were known for, right? The way mm -hmm. um, these kind of crazy Christians that everyone was trying to get rid of, they couldn't get rid of them, not because they were powerful and had a lot of money or had you know a great army, but because they just outloved everybody else. And people just were so attracted to the care, the compassion, the love, and the truth that was being proclaimed and shared everywhere that the Christians went. And so it was just this, this sort of social contagion, if you will, that just spread like wildfire because people were just like, I've never seen people treat people this way before. And it's because Jesus treated people this yeah. way. And then, you know, in, if you want to come even to more modern history in American uh, culture, you can look at all kinds of examples in, in our history where Christians have made significant contributions. You can look at um, even the founding documents of our nation. I would go so far as not to say that they're necessarily mainline Christian, but their founders certainly had Christian values. Um, it was kind of a, a intermingling of Enlightenment values and some Judeo-Christian values. I mean, the Enlightenment stemmed out from the, the Judeo-Christian worldview. And then you can fast forward even to, like, you know, if you went to the, the Civil War, a lot of men fought uh, for to to abolish slavery in our in our nation because of their values that they held um, regarding human dignity and uh, the well-being of of uh, black men and women in our country. You can fast forward to the '60s. You see Martin Luther King Jr. and the um, civil rights movement. This is all. These are he's literally a pastor. This all stems from out of the um, the sort of identity of of uh, of, uh, of being a Christian, and so it's kind of. It's kind of one of those things is when, when people try to um, say that Christianity is not needed in our culture for morality to exist or for human care to take place. It's like, well, that, you know, you might have a case if that, if that were true, but you don't have a case historically because nothing, no, there's, there's never been a, a purely state-initiated um, thing that didn't model something that Christians had already done to yeah. care for human beings, care for, care for people. And, um, you know, 
that's I think of our topic last time we talked about science and often the scientific discoveries that have taken place um, in connection with care for people have grown out of how do you help someone with a certain disease um, um, again it's grown out of that Christian care that we have for and compassion that we have for others uh, that we want to alleviate the suffering and the pain that they're going through mm -hmm. and um, and so the whole scientific uh, area of science has been a, um, uh, a way to help people um, um, uh, as disease has um, been a part of people's lives as well. Mm -hmm. so, um, so how does the, the Christian worldview provide a, a foundation for promoting compassion and justice um, and involvement in social issues? I think at the very core of it is the message of the gospel, right? That Jesus came to save uh, humanity through his sacrifice. Um, but that's not the end of the story because if everyone, if everyone just walks around and goes, oh, cool, I'm saved, and then still lives a debaucherous life and a, a life of promoting the self over others, then the world doesn't resemble the sacrifice that, that Christ made for us. And so Christians... Uh, who take their faith seriously, take the gospel seriously, see that from that gospel stems a call, an exhortation towards the third use of the law, which to kind of flesh that out, what I mean is that the law has three basic means, a curb, a mirror, and then a guide. The curb and the mirror show us our sin and push us to Christ to, to acknowledge our need for for his saving grace, which we find in the gospel. But the third use of the law actually stems from the, what Jesus has done. Because it's now becomes, the law doesn't become this sort of measuring stick to show us how we fall short or this mirror to show us how wretched we truly are. But rather it gives us a guide or a, a road map, a path forward so that we can live more and more like Christ all the time. And so I think that, the, that that's what we really see at work uh, in a lot of the ways that Christians are serving and loving their neighbor today is that they're, they're acknowledging the power of the gospel and its transformative effect to lead people to fulfill their calling to live out the third use of the law, to love their neighbor and to love their God. Okay. So how can we strike a balance between promoting human care and justice initiatives um, and at the same time stay rooted deeply uh, in God's word? Uh, um, so I think a true expression of God's word leads you to live out this le level of compassion and justice. Um, I think that divorced from God's word, compassion and justice quickly becomes an enterprise in building up the self. Mm -hmm. um, you see a lot of this. <laughs> there, there's been books written about this sort of trend of uh, um, sort of volunteerism that's actually evolving more into like vacationing, uh, or um, you'll see in you know social media influencers trying to do nice things for people, but they don't do it out of the genuine goodness of their heart. They do it to get likes on YouTube or Twitter or or whatever to showcase how good they are, how morally virtuous they are. Um, and so I think there's a lot of that going on in, in the secular world. So if you divorce love for the neighbor, compassion towards those in, in need, uh, and, and mercy ministries in this world, and you divorce that from God's word, you don't, you don't connect it to what, what it really is, which is living out faith, the living out faith. Uh, so as Christians, I think striking that balance is really important because we want to, on the one hand, um, go out into the world and seek to eradicate injustices. But by the same token, we don't, we don't do kind of what's become known as being a social justice warrior, where we're going out and we're actively trying to root up um, problematic things as we see them uh, to try to bring... Um, causes that we see as important to the main uh, conversation table so that we can get them uh, fixed, um, be they perceived or uh, as injustices or otherwise. Um, so we got to be careful and make that distinction about what God uh, commands us to, to find as injustices in the world and what the world likes to put up on a pedestal to advance a political cause. We yeah. have to be very cautious about that.
I think it's, it's different with every person. There are some people that uh, more easily stay rooted in God's word and can therefore more deeply get involved in, in different kinds of social justices. There, there are others that as much as they uh, are rooted in God's word, they get, they get out into the world and sometimes they get influenced um, by the things that happen in the world. And so each person needs to know uh, where they're at in their faith and when the world begins to influence them and when they need to maybe step back and um, uh, retreat into God's word, uh, spend more time with Christian people to make sure that when they go out into the world, um, they're doing so for the right purposes and, um, and, doing, and serving those around them in the right way. Yeah. It's, it can be a challenge for everyone and everyone's different. And, and that's uh, one of the reasons why it can become difficult for, for people. While you were saying that, I had a thought to maybe create an even further um, clarification of the definition or distinction between secular social justice and what Christians sort of would tout as justice in a social sphere. Um, we would say that, that social justice is sort of a microcosm of God's grander justice. So there, there is big picture justice that God meets out every right and every wrong to make it all level, uh, you know, to make everything right in the end. Social justice within that from a Christian standpoint is saying we, we perceive injustices within our society because our society is formed by sinful is consisted of sinful human beings. And so we try to work within the systems and the structures that we see around us as citizens who happen to be, or as Christians who happen to be citizens is what I'm trying to say. And, and so we say that social justice is a microcosm or, or maybe you could call it, to use sort of <laughs> pastoral terms, a type um, of, of, of the bigger picture justice. Whereas I would say that for those who are perceiving or, or pursuing social justice apart or divorced from God's word, what they see is social justice as an end in itself. That that is the, the highest level or the highest type of justice is the justice which can be um, delivered through social networks and structures. And that until those social structures, until those sort of... Uh, um, uh, sort of ways that life has been designed for us to work, there are perceived injustices within those systems that need to be fixed. And so our, our job as Christians is not to go back and, and tinker and fix every single little thing to, to make society work as well as it, as it should for people because there'll never be perfection in our society. We simply say, because our society is a broken place, because our lives are broken, because we're sinful people, of course there's going to be injustices. And we seek to root out those injustices where they're found because it's a part of God's higher justice. Okay. So uh, maybe let's look at some very specific types of social injustice. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to begin by maybe talking about poverty and crime. Okay. So what are, what are some of the practical steps um, I guess, first of all, what does the Christian world say about poverty and crime? Let's start there. Yeah, well, um, so it's, kind of a, it's kind of a blunt verse, but Deuteronomy 15 uh, says some stuff about this. And also, Jesus has some things to say about this later. So it's not just an Old Testament, it's also a new, to kind of define this idea of poverty. But uh, Deuteronomy 15, 9, uh, I'll just read a couple of verses here. Um, so Deuteronomy is Moses sharing to the people of Israel some, some thoughts from his time as their leader before they go into the promised land, and he does not. So it's kind of his last hurrah, right? He says, uh, Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near. So that's a, a common practice in the Jewish tradition to cancel debts every seven years to sort of reset the clock so that people don't get into this generational poverty and, and have their whole lives defined by um, a debt that they incurred. So have, don't have this thought as the, that time appears um, so that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously, therefore, to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be the poor 
among you in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brother and towards the poor and needy in your land. And Jesus has some things to say about that as well. Um, A little bit later in Mark chapter 14, during his ministry, he's in Bethany, when the woman comes and pours the the perfume you know onto his feet and wipes the wipes his feet with his head. there's a couple different versions so i gotta make sure i got the right one but um but essentially i think it's judas steps up and says why didn't we sell that and give the money to the poor and that's not a bad point like it's been a year's wages right been a year, i mean a year's wages yeah. for the poor i'll you know take that and and put it to good use right but um jesus's statement sounds really rough when you think of Jesus purely as a moral teacher or when you approach his mentality with just a view of purely secular social um, justice and awareness, he says, you'll always have the poor among you. Like, they'll always be there. But she did something beautiful when she put this on my feet. So what he's doing there is not to diminish our call from Deuteronomy chapter 15 to, to be kind to those in need and to give as, with an open hand. Instead, what he's saying is, what's the higher good to, to uh, acknowledge the needy in your land and do what you can to serve them, or to acknowledge God Almighty who is in control of all things and who is ultimately the, the judge who will make all injustices right in the end, and to acknowledge him as king. So that's exactly what the woman did is she took something of precious value and ascribed that value as much as she could to worshiping and honoring God. And Jesus is saying this is a good thing. Not that you shouldn't serve and love your neighbor and help those in need and, and give to those who are poverty-stricken because you should. But if if you are ever in a situation where it's like, you know, uh, you have a, a person in need or you have uh, a way to honor God, um, sometimes we honor God by giving to people in need. It, it's just in this particular situation, Jesus said, I, I won't be with you forever. I'm only here now. And she's done a wonderful thing. So I, to me, this elevates even the beauty of giving because it showcases that the, the only thing that Jesus said that would be of a higher calling than giving to the poor and the needy is to, in that particular historical moment when, when she gave all she had to to adorn the very f- near future sacrifice that would redeem mankind with uh, sweet smelling incense and air perfume. So kind of goes yeah. back to the, as we talk about the first commandment, you should have no other gods before me. What does this mean? That, that we fear, love, and trust in God above all things, all things. that we, we give him our, our, our best. Uh-huh. Um, and yet at the same time, uh, and that was interesting when, when somebody asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he wedded it with that, that other passage, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And so we, we do both of those things. And uh, both of them uh, grows out of a, a love and an honor to God. And um, at the same time, we're not to forget our neighbors. Yep. Yeah. And so what, uh, um, what about anything else about crime? We think of crime, I think of the, the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we explain that, what does this mean? Again, we fear and love God that we do not take our neighbor's money or give goods or get them by false wear or dealing, but we help uh, to protect and improve his property and business. We, we help our neighbor in whatever way we can. Yeah. I think that Jesus on the cross is also a very good thing to start talking about crime. He was, he was crucified a criminal's death next to criminals. And there's two ways that the criminals interact with Jesus. The one is the mockery. Jesus doesn't even respond. He has no, he has no response for that man. The other is repentance. So that's a good, a good sort of uh, image for us to think about. That uh, uh, being so, having crime in your history does not automatically make you uh, not worthy of of respect necessarily, or even make you not created in the image of God, not able to repent. Um, obviously. Jesus told that criminal, this very day you'll be with me in paradise. And even even to this day, he's only one of probably five or six guys we know for 100% certain is with Jesus in heaven. We assume there's a lot more, but God is the one who knows, not us. But he, he privileged this criminal by assuring him that he would be counted uh, and numbered as one whose name is in the book of life. 
That's pretty big, pretty big stuff, right? Yeah. So just because you're a criminal doesn't doesn't mean you're not worthy of respect just because you have done crime in your past. But it also does not mean that people who are criminals should continue in their crimes. Um, Jesus calls out several tax collectors who come to him and says, give what you have back to the poor. And he expects people to uh, meet out the consequences of the wrongdoings that they've done and then move forward in repentance. Yeah. Sometimes Jesus asks, asks us to do the hardest thing. Uh, we think of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and he asked, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, give everything that you have to the poor and then come and follow me. And he recognized that was the stumbling block that was before this rich young ruler uh, that kept him from following after Christ. And so um, I, I also want to mention there are different kinds of poverty. Uh, there's, there's spiritual poverty, there's uh, poverty of being, which is either a, a low self-image or uh, putting ourself in the place of God. <laughs> Both of those are a, or a, a poverty of being. There's a, um, a poverty of community. Um, and there's also a poverty of stewardship, which you have nothing, uh, nothing to give. That's usually what we think of when we think of poverty. Yeah. But there are different kinds of poverties and needs that people have. And so we need to be aware of, of, of what those needs are. I guess so. Let's talk real quick about this. What should Christians feel about initiatives within our society related to poverty? So, for example, homelessness. Should we, should we be giving to people who ask for money on the side of the road? Should we be willing to advocate within governmental groups for welfare programs? Like, what? I guess, what? What do you think about that? Yeah, I I would look at. Um, I would look at, I guess, personally, I would look at and ask what are the best practices that are in our community sure. that are most helpful for people. One that don't um, uh, foster the continuation of living in that same poverty, mm -hmm. but one that helps people get on their feet so that they can be responsible to live uh, 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 as a good steward of God and, and begin to provide for themselves and become uh, uh, hopefully um, independent once again so that they can make it in society and um, so I would look at you know what are the different practices that are going on uh, the again I'm I often disfavor um, our our government oftentimes they just give handouts and I'm I'm least in favor of that but there are some government agencies that are actually helpful for people and and um, so I would look at and see what would what agencies are currently in place that are already helping the people in the best way. Yeah. I think it's important to, to think about and remember that any agency within our society or governmental sphere that exists to care and love people is there because of the failings of Christians in our society to do that mm -hmm. job and fulfill that task. So um, that's important to remember. The reason why these things exist is because people have not lived up to Christ's calling to care for and love their neighbor. Yeah. And there, there may be some agencies that have grown out of Christian love mm -hmm. that um, uh, benefit people in the right way to help them uh, become independent again. And, and, uh, um, and if, if there's that kind of uh, organization that's already in place, um, how can we add to it or how can we replicate it in, in the place where we're at. Yeah. So um, another, um, uh, another topic is uh, the area of abortion and matters of life and death. Uh, what does our Christian worldview say about those issues? Well, God has some pretty clear things to say. I mean, the one that's often used is from Psalm 139. So I'll find that and we can read it real quick. Um, Psalm 139, uh, 13 to... Uh, to 15 is the one that's often used, uh, where God is essentially, uh, or David is, um, is essentially uh, praising God uh, for everything in his life up to and including the inception of his life. So in verse 13, it says, For you created me in my own, in my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully wonder and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. And, and it says, your eyes saw my unformed body. And so essentially we're saying here, God 
through David, acknowledges that even before we're out in the world, even before we're born, life exists. He knows us. We're in a person with an individual identity made in the image of God. And I think political rhetoric has tried to muddy the waters to create all these different circumstances that exist that might justify the continuation of abortion. Um, however, if it boils down to a simple truth, the simple truth, the simple question that, that must be answered truthfully is, is it a clump of cells or is it a human being? If it's a clump of cells, by all means, do what you want to with that clump of cells within your body. If it's a human being, there can be no line that can be crossed to destroy that. Otherwise, it is violating, in religious terms, the fifth commandment. And frankly, it's violating civil law, saying that this is a human life which is being destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there's a, I don't even remember who it is, and it's kind of crude, so I don't advise you to go look at it. But there's a comedian who says, I totally support a woman's right to choose as long as she acknowledges that she's killing a human being. Oh. <laughs> and it's like... How does that how does that justifiable? But uh, you know it's um, and sometimes people that are for abortion are uh, against abortion mm-hmm. um, uh, are trying to are being put into the camp that they're not pro um, um, support of women. Yeah, and and that's not the case. That is true. Yeah, that is true. If anything, I would say that a a uh, a pro-life uh, viewpoint is very pro-woman because half of babies that are killed in the womb are women. Yeah. So, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> I think one thing that Christians can do and have been doing, frankly, in the last 20 or 30 years is showcasing that, uh, that the care and love of life doesn't just mean getting a baby into the world, but it means supporting the child's mother. It means providing for their future to the extent that it can be provided for. It means educating people on how to um, prevent unwanted pregnancies and not have uh, um, a situation where, uh, through education, where babies are made without uh, without uh, desire to have them. Um, and, and so the, the church and Christians in general in our society, I think, have come a long way in speaking to the human element underlying uh, abortion, because I think in its early days the pro-life movement just said, you know, women who had abortions were, you know, whores, prostitutes, like horrible, wretched women who had no value at all. And that's simply not the case. That's still a beloved child of God who sinned, who fell into a uh, may may not have even sinned. You know, it might have been something where someone sinned against her. And Christians have come a long way in trying to not simply allow the, the politics of the situation to, uh, to uh, prevent us from loving the person who is seeking the abortion. Instead, what we do is we attack the issue. We attack, the, we attack also, we go after, I want to say, I don't want to say attack necessarily, we go after the ethos or mentality that there's nothing wrong in it. We go after um, institutions and, and policies that promote it as simply another option because that that has allowed further sin to multiply and compound itself, and uh, so people are never the enemy. No. Uh, but the question is, what is what is the issue, and is the issue how does it compare with God's word? Uh, does God speak a clear word uh, uh, on that issue? And in the case of of abortion, uh, God's word is very clear that life, all life, is sacred from the time of conception until the time that God. Uh, calls that person, uh, stops their heart and takes their last breath. Um, and, um, and so he wants us to recognize the sacredness of life as yeah. well. So, so that's one area. I think I put in here life and death too because I think another area where Christians are sometimes held to account is in matters of uh, like capital punishment or um, we're going to get into violence and gun rights in a second, but, so I don't want to get into that one yet. But... Um, but you know, we euthanasia. Euthanasia might be yeah. another one. In other countries, especially, they were you know European countries that are traditionally Christian. A lot of them are starting to introduce euthanasia as an option towards the end of life. So how how do we 
what is Christian? What is the Christian world you have to say about those issues? I guess. Yeah, and um, a person who's lost a father uh, a couple of years ago, and um, uh, so I, I think back. My father went on hospice, and that um, what people did was care for him, uh, try to alleviate the the pain that he had, and just help him to be comfortable in the last um, months and days of his life. Yep, and. Um, and that whole area of hospice is, uh, I've seen it as a very good and helpful, um, um, what do I want to say, practice of, of caring for people at the end of life. Yeah. Uh, rather than saying, this person has no value, uh, let's just end their life. Mm -hmm. And um, But again, as Christians, we see that uh, God has uh, made all life sacred. And so uh, we love that person until God... Uh, uh, says it's time for them no longer to live on this earth. Sure. Okay. What about capital punishment? That's kind of a... Capital punishment? Yeah, that is a sticky situation. Um, uh, God says that on the one hand, life is sacred. And at the same time, he also says that the government bears um, a sword um, to, to inflict punishment on those who are evildoers. And, you know, the capital punishment is... Um, only an option for the the worst of crimes, and um, and so um, throughout the history of Christianity, capital punishment has um, been a part of our understanding of how God deals justice uh, in in the lives of people. But uh, do we do we always um, you know as Christians we always hope that a person will repent of their sin. Uh, we always encourage them to do that and uh, want them to know that God's love is there for them if, um, uh, as they turn away from their sin. Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and yet at the same time, God, God allows capital punishment to take place. Yeah. So uh, Martin Luther actually has something interesting to talk about with this. Uh, he was um, talking about Christians being involved in civil society and being good citizens of their their. To, the, to their prince elector in Germany or wherever they are to be good citizen. He went so far as to say if, you're, if your town has a vacancy in the executioner's seat, you should volunteer for it. You should be willing to take up that role because it is necessary for good order and conduct in your society that wicked people be punished in accordance with the consequences of their crime. And so he, he gave full, full justice and credence towards that mentality and had saw no conflict in God's word whatsoever that would preclude a Christian from doing that. And you might say, well, wait a minute, God's word says thou shalt not kill. And this is where some nuance comes in. It's like God says thou shalt not kill, but yet God wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> so, and God says thou shalt not kill, but he also gives David the strength to, to kill and overcome Goliath. And, um, that's where you kind of have to use a little bit of nuance and say God, God is telling us in our lives and in, in the right position in our life not to unjustly take the lives of a person. However, he is saying there are structures within society that he has established in his left-hand realm, his left-hand kingdom, that require justice to be met out for certain crimes, and that's good. It's actually condoned by God. Yeah, the same can be said uh, for a person serving as a soldier uh, in the armed forces. Uh, there are times where the armed forces are called to protect their country and that may take the, and that may uh, affect the taking of a life. Yeah. And uh, the, the soldier isn't killing a person on their own, but they're acting on behalf of uh, the governing authorities that God has established. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in that sense, they're being a faithful citizen um, in their calling to God. Mm -hmm. So um, let's let's talk maybe a, a little something that comes maybe a little bit more closely to home. Let's talk about racial inequality uh, and multiculturalism. Um, what would the Christian worldview say about these these concepts? Yeah, just to pull a couple of verses. I mean, you you go to very beginning in Genesis chapter um, one, verse twenty-seven. Um, God is creating heavens and the earth on the sixth day. He makes man, he says, um, he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. 
So you have the human dignity, the human, Im the divine image uh, placed onto all humans that are descended from Adam and Eve, which is everyone you see, uh, no matter no matter race, no matter culture, no matter creed, no matter level of societal development, every single person is worthy of, of dignity and respect because they are made in the image of God. And so uh, there's, um, in, in the creation, there's no distinction between races. Jesus doubles down on that, and in his time, he shares love with Jew, with Greek, with Syrophoenician with anything you can possibly come to. And then... Samaritans. And Samaritans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go, yeah. Uh, and then after that, in uh, Galatians, Paul says there's now no... Uh, there's now neither G Jew nor Greek or any other distinction that can be made to separate Christian from Christian. That is the most important distinction now is the, the connection and the identity to Christ. So... In the creation, it wasn't important. Society made it important over generations and generations. And Jesus doubles down and says, nope, that's not the case. And then Paul, in, establish, in the establishing of the way the church is to operate, says, race really shouldn't matter for you guys. It, culture really shouldn't matter for you at all. The thing that matters more than anything else is your identity in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, Christians, how do we interact and intersect with racial inequality today? Um, we should stand against racial inequality. We should certainly say that um, that there's there's no distinction between someone that's of of African origin, someone of Asian origin, someone of European or even Native American origin. Uh, they're all image bearers of God. They're all worthy of dignity and respect. They might have cultural differences, things which which create sort of societal friction, but. Our identity in Christ is what, what unites us and what calls us to love those people regardless of their, their, their race or cultural background. Yeah. So oftentimes what complicates things is because we're sinful people, if somebody's different than us, whether it's their skin color or their culture, the way they do things, um, sometimes we're suspicious. Um, sometimes we even become fearful uh, of another person or another culture and that um, our sin drives us, but God tells us there's really only one race, yeah. and that's the human race. Yeah. And, um, and again, people are made in his image and after his likeness. And um, So what are some practical steps that individuals or churches can take um, as we love those who are different than us? Well, there's no more segregated place in America than the church on Sunday morning. Um, the LCMS is one of the worst offenders of this. We are 95, 96% white uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant background. And uh, I don't think that there's any steps that the LCMS has taken to, to drive away people of other uh, ethnic backgrounds or, or races, if you will. Um, and, and part of that reason is that we grew out of a European, German-European background and so that's the the history um, of is. the people that that have been a part of our church for the last little over 150 years and see I would I would say that uh, just to kind of brag on our church a little bit for the LCMS we're actually quite a diverse church I mean there there are some which are way way more uh, diverse than than ours but there's the vast vast majority are a lot less diverse than ours. I think King of Kings does a good job of simply welcoming people, and if people are comfortable in our situation, we're comfortable with them. And I I think that there there are there are a lot of uh, opportunities for us to grow in this way. We actually had a member of our congregation who put on their connection card, "What are some ways that we can engage people of other cultures and and ethnic backgrounds uh, to attend worship." and feel comfortable and I I've been thinking about that I know you kind of mm -hmm. been too and, and we've been talking about it in our staff and 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 um, we you know there's some things we could probably do uh, but but uh, we're always open for new ideas of ways to to re to be reminded internally and to express externally that Jesus is not a European God right he's not an American God he is a God for people from all over the earth yeah yeah and uh, 
Um, I thought of one of the organizations that are here in the St. Louis area, uh, Christian Friends of New Americans. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the um, uh, societies, if you will, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that um, very intentionally reaches out to people of different cultures and races and backgrounds uh, to try and help them um, uh, get connected to develop a skill and um, begin working towards independence so that they can be self-supporting. And uh, it's, 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 it, it's interesting and wonderful to see on the one hand, and yet the challenges are constantly there on the other. Yeah. And um, so they're, they're a, a great organization. Um, and I think another great organization that we're really close with is Bethlehem Lutheran. In the 1930s yes. and 40s, what was the, the ethnic demographics of Bethlehem Lutheran Church in St. Louis? Yeah. Probably pretty close to what the rest of the Lutheran churches was in, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Those those cultural uh, and, and demographic trends shifted, and it it hit Bethlehem pretty hard. It, like it hit all inner city churches really hard, and the vast majority of those inner city churches shut down because they were not able to make the the steps to adapt and to invite and to promote um, that that sort of multiculturalism and that background of fostering that kind of environment and you look at Bethlehem now and I think they're they're a case study for how to make that transition healthily. Thriving church. They're a thriving church. Uh, they have you know the wonderful ministries that are going on. Um, they've got a school that they're supporting yeah. and they're so. doing real grassroots uh, Christian love and care ministries in places that really need that stuff so that that's a great case study and 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 I think more churches can can learn from that yeah. in the future. Yeah. Um, let's go on. Let's uh, let's talk about gun rights and violence in society. What would the Christian worldview have to say about these uh, uh, about these topics? I think what you have to introduce here is the topic of, of vocation. I think if uh, if a person just goes and walks around brandishing, uh, you know, uh, their AR shooter. fifteen yeah. or their shooter <laughs> on their back, yeah, yeah. then. Um, it's their right to do so in our nation, I think. That's fair. But I think Christians need to use discernment here and say, is that really what God would desire for me to do? Um, however, I think there is a very right and meet and salutary reason for, doing, for, for possessing a weapon if you are comfortable and knowledgeable in doing so, and that is in the vocation of uh, protecting people who are, who are unable to protect themselves. So I think you know, fathers with families, it's totally fine to have some, to possess something that allows you to protect people uh, from the evils in this world in case those evils are met out upon you and your family. I think that's, that's justified. I don't believe that, that, uh, we already talked a little bit about soldiers and Martin Luther had a really good, uh, a really good conversation that's recorded where he was talking to a soldier who was feeling a weight of, uh, of conscience that he had killed people when he was, you know, opening the scriptures and reading thou shalt not kill. And, and he was really feeling convicted. And Luther reminded the soldier of his duty to people in his nation who were dependent on him for protection mm -hmm. from those he was fighting against who would seek to destroy and uproot their lives. And he said, that's good. That's a God pleasing vocation that you were living out. Police officers, same kind of thing. Um, they bear the weapon if they do so to, you know, to showcase how tough and rough they are or to, because they get their kicks, you know, yelling at people, that's not right. But if they are truly bearing that sword, if you want to in air quotes, or, or bearing that weapon so as to uh, ensure justice and to protect the innocent, I think that's a God-pleasing way to, to do that. And so I don't think... I don't think it's quite so clear as our nation tries to make it out that everyone should just be walking around all the time with a gun on their back and that that's a good thing. But yet I also see a God-pleasing way to incorporate um, guns into uh, a Christian worldview as well. Yeah, And there's a lot of people, I, we grew up in a very agricultural society and there were, there were, <laughs> very important reasons um, that people would carry guns and weapons um, in that time frame. Uh, I, 
I was a part of the Nebraska district, and I still remember the story that uh, the district president shared one time of a, a pastor that was out in the western part of Nebraska, and he was visiting different churches. And um, on one occasion, as he and his family were in a, a buckboard, and they were moving across the prairie, um, they were surrounded and attacked by um, a pack of wolves. Whoa. And, uh, and it, it's kind of an interesting story. The pastor's wife was ready to throw herself off uh, to sacrifice herself so that the family could get away. And there's, um, as the, the pastor was describing these pack of wolves, he even said there was uh, one wolf that was hanging on the, the nose of one of the horses that they had. Um, uh, but God in his providence, um, um, there was a, at the same time, there was a, a prairie fire that was going on and this pastor ended up driving his horses through the prairie fire and it, it uh, scattered, scattered the, wolves. the wolves and the family was safe. Um, but um, again, that's, that's part of the history that people grew up with and, and uh, having people in my family that grew up on the farm. Um, there are still wild animals that, that pose a danger and, and, um, uh, and families that need protecting and, and livestock that need protecting as well. So, Is there any valid reason for the exercise of violence in society? Um, we would say that, that God has put people in place that would primarily prevent violence. Uh, God tells us very clearly again in, in, the, uh, in the Ten Commandments, you shall not kill. It uh, goes on to say that we don't hurt or harm our neighbor in his body. Yeah. And so, so God is very clear. There's, there's one stance. Um, it's one thing to protect self and family. It's another thing to act out in a violent way on somebody else yeah. uh, when they pose no threat. And um, uh, so God doesn't, I'm not aware of anything in scripture that, that um, where God encourages us to be violent. He encourages us to be kind and compassionate. Level-headed, buster the meek, that uh, kind of thing, yeah. Understanding of others. Sure, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I think with the notable exception of people fulfilling their vocations who are called to meet out that violence on, on evildoers. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we'll, we'll go on here. So in what ways can Christians promote compassion and justice within, even within their families or their workplace or in their community? Um, imitate Christ. I mean, that's, I think that's really what it boils down to is you imitate Christ. You seek to uh, love those who, are, who seem unlovable by society. You have mercy on those who don't deserve it. You share love and compassion uh, with those closest to you, like like we say in your family, and even those that are far apart from you, and you just just love people, love your neighbor. Yeah. So how do we inspire other Christians, uh, fellow Christians, uh, to be uh, actively participating in promoting justice around us, and how do we mobilize other Christians uh, and other people in our society to? Um, to help in this area of social justice. Yeah, I mean, iron sharpens iron, right? So that's a, a, a very clear uh, call for us to improve uh, not just ourselves and our own interests in following Christ, but also to encourage and uh, sort of spur others on, uh, as, as I believe Paul says, um, to good deeds. And so uh, we have to do this also by speaking the truth in love. Sometimes we have to speak truth to those around us out of love for them so that they will imitate Christ. And sometimes we need people in our lives to spur us on to do those things. And I think that's the, the one of the main benefits of Christian community is that we're never doing anything related to our Christian faith on an island. We always have people in our lives that God has given to us to spur us on to trust in God and to do his will. Yeah, one of the challenges that I, I recognize as a worker in the church is that there are, um, I can easily uh, get overwhelmed with all the needs that are out in society. And uh, so, so as people who are Christians, uh, we need to be aware of what those needs are. Um, uh, it's good to recognize if God is calling us to serve uh, in an area where we can serve our neighbor, uh, specifically in the area of social justice. And sometimes those, um, those ministries grow out of um, 
times when we've been hurt ourselves because of social injustice. Yeah. And sometimes it's out of that pain that God actually uh, creates an opportunity to begin to serve and care for others. Mm -hmm. And somebody once said, don't let a good pain go wasted <laughs> to waste. And um, uh, so there, there are opportunities all around us uh, to love and serve our neighbor. And, and uh, my prayer is always that God will give us eyes to see what they are uh, so that we can love and serve our neighbor. And also we acknowledge that it's an enormous elephant that we're chipping away at one bite at a time. And in the end, we can never fully eat the elephant. And that's why Christ had to come, right? Yeah. Is to, to, to truly destroy the effects of evil and sin in this world, it takes the perfect sacrifice of God's own son. Now we ben benefit and inherit uh, the, the blessings of that, but he also calls us to join him in trying to take a hunk out of that elephant while we have the opportunity to do so, so that more have the opportunity to receive the benefits and blessings of, of his salvation. Yeah. And so uh, what role, we often talk about the law and the gospel, what role does the law play in matters of human dignity and justice? Um, and then also, is there a place for the gospel as well? But let's start with the law. Certainly the law, the law of God is what we're talking about here, not the governmental laws necessarily, but God's law to love our neighbor as ourself and to love God, and then broken down into the Ten Commandments, and then broken even further down into just the, the various teachings of Scripture as to how we are to live. Uh, inform us in many ways of how Christians are called to, to be uh, salt and light in the world, to be compassionate, to love, to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And, and so I think the law plays a very major part in how we interact with, with those around us. In matters of human dignity, we see the law informing all people that in the law we are all broken and sinful people in need of a savior in matters of justice we see that the law is god's uh measuring uh rule that he says that the world must fit in this in this uh in this particular measuring rule or else it's against my will and so he doesn't give us any flexibility the law does not give us any flexibility to say something that's unjust is actually just. It doesn't give us any uh, flexibility to claim something is unjust that is simply uh, that is simply a way the world has worked. And so we need to be cautious about how we do that, um, about what we call just and unjust. We we need to ascribe always compare it to God's word. That definition to God and His word exactly. Yeah. Yep. So what about the gospel? Is there, is there room for the gospel in social justice? There better be. <laughs> there better be. Because like I said earlier, if you divorce social justice from God's word, from his law, and from his gospel, then you're operating under the false presumption that the highest level of sort of morality is to fight for the good of others and, and to seek justice. And that is important, but like I said, it's a microcosm of God's bigger justice, his bigger plan to redeem the world and make all that is unjust, just again. Yeah, so there's, there's opportunities because we're in a world of sinful people. There's opportunities all around us for forgiveness. Um, sometimes we misunderstand our neighbor and we need to ask for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's the purpose of the gospel is to give us that forgiveness. There's uh, opportunities where we treat evil poorly. We, we treated people poorly or, or um, um, uh, taken advantage of people in some way. And, and those always call for confession and forgiveness uh, as we turn away from those sins and, and receive the forgiveness that Christ has won for us. And, and so the gospel plays a, a, a very important part uh, in the midst of the pain and suffering that we have all around us. Um, and it's, it's the gospel that gives us the hope in the world uh, that God will one day uh, wipe out injustice and he will make all of the wrongs right uh, when Christ returns. Mm -hmm. and, and that becomes our, our hope mm -hmm. for the future. So, so that, that brings us to the end of, of our discussion for today as we talked about social issues and hope that this has been a benefit to you and, and how you can speak the truth and love for others. So. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost for your love for us. We thank you for your word that teaches us what is true and right and just in this world. And 
Um, uh, Lord, we need your word to guide and lead us. Uh, we thank you for your spirit as well, who also leads us always back into your word and leads us uh, also out into the world uh, to love and care for others, to show them compassion and mercy. And we ask, Lord, that you be active in our life um, as we look around us uh, again. We pray that you will help us to see you at work so that we can join you in that work. And where we see social injustice, that we speak against it. And where we see opportunities to love and serve, that we use the time and the skills and gifts that you've given us to serve our neighbor. And so bless us towards that end. Uh, opportunities abound all around us. And so we thank you for those. And uh, we always pray that you help us to be good and wise stewards with the gifts that you've given us so that you might be honored in all things. So be with us this day in all that we say and do. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Thanks for being with us today. Have a great day in the Lord and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Coffee and Clergy podcast. We're glad that you could join the conversation. Coffee and Clergy is a ministry of King of Kings Lutheran Church in Chesterfield, Missouri. You can catch us live on YouTube or Facebook on Thursday mornings, and we'll post the podcast on Fridays. For more information, check out our website at www.kokstl.org. Blessings on your day, and we'll see you next time.